0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church Podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Thanks, Can you guys hear me? Everyone good? Good morning. If you've ever seen anyone killing the violin up here, that's my wife, by the way, just so you guys know. It's an honor to be here today as we wrap up the Second Peter series. And what a whirlwind it's been, right? We've been looking at false teaching. And recently, we've been looking and spending a lot of time on, okay, is Jesus going to come back? What does that look like? Okay, we have faith that Jesus is going to come back. What do we do now? False teaching has changed, and we have false teaching today. Our comm group got together last night. We watched a documentary. There's always modern twists on the false teachings and philosophies of the day. But back in the early church at this time, they're dealing with those that are saying, hey, you know, Jesus did come, and he did die, but he's gone. He's not coming back. It's time to party. And I think you have other people in the church saying, well, is that the case? It sounds attractive, right? There's no accountability. I can just be free to do what I want. There's no judgment coming. And Peter responds, I wouldn't say harshly, but directly to this and says, no, Jesus is coming back, and it's going to be beautiful, not so secret." And it's going to be miraculous and spectacular. And it's exciting and it's something to be hopeful for and expectant for. Jesus is coming back. And now we today in the modern church, most of us here believe that, the early church decides to accept this, that Jesus is returning. And in many ways, this changes everything. But also, it doesn't change some things. Persecution doesn't end. Your suffering doesn't stop. Temptation doesn't walk out the door. It's because you believe that Jesus is coming back. So everything does change. But a question remains, which is, what do we do now? What do we do now while we wait with expectancy for the return of the Lord? And that's why we should be so thankful that 2 Peter doesn't end the passage here on just Jesus returning, but actually shows us, okay, We believe Jesus is returning. Now, how do we live believing he's going to return? How do we posture ourselves? How do we live out Christian duty knowing that Jesus is going to come back? In many ways, we don't know, and of course we don't know the day or the hour that the Lord is going to return. You could almost call it an expected surprise. We expect the return of the Lord, but it's a surprise in the nature of the timing that he's going to come back. And that can be difficult for many of us. Why is that? A lot of us don't really like surprises. I don't like surprises, especially these kind, expected surprises. The second my wife tells me that she has an expected surprise for me, I think she wished she could suck those words back in her mouth. Because if it is an expected gift surprise, I want to weigh it, I want to shake it, I want to smell it, I want to see what is it, I ask questions, I can't just rest in the surprise that's coming. I get anxious. I want to know what it is. If it's an expected surprise event, should I wear dress shoes, athletic shoes? Who's going to be there? What time are we going? Just to figure out as much info, because I'm desperate to figure out what's the surprise going to be. It had been better had I just never known at all. But we need to know that Jesus is coming back. So then how do we live now in confidence and peace, knowing that the Lord is going to return? And we are very fortunate that the Bible is going to tell us how to do that. So we're going to read today's passage as we close out the Second Peter series study, which is Second Peter three, fourteen through eighteen. Therefore, beloved, since you were waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord a salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So we have three commands from Peter for how to live. And also, why is Paul mentioned? So that's what we're going to focus on today. What are these three commands that Peter gives us on how to live as believers, knowing that the Lord is going to return, and why on earth is Paul mentioned? It seems like it's just out of nowhere, and we're going to delve into the importance of that in a little bit. But let's start from the top in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. The word beloved is used four times just in this chapter alone. By today's standards, beloved is quite an archaic term. We might say dear or sweetie. It's not maybe as often the language we use. And you see it there, and you might ponder, well, why is beloved used there? I don't really see the point. And I thought about it, and I thought, you know, anytime I need to ask someone or my wife for help with something or need her attention, it never hurts to add a sweetie at the beginning. And I think I would vouch that it doesn't hurt my chances to do so. Attaching identity to whatever that follows improves your chances of connecting with that individual. Stating beloved, first of all, that the child or the person or the reader is beloved first and foremost by God, and secondly, that Peter loves them. So although there's passages that are maybe difficult to digest things that are hard to understand, rebukes that may happen. It's done through the lens of love and compassion. So I suggest you guys try that, you know, give sweetie pie a try or whatever. Maybe not with your guy friends, that might be a bit strange. But I think it's important that beloved is there. Because Peter is telling us who our identity is in that. And also you'll see beloved is important later on. So the first call from Peter is to be diligent. The definition of diligence is careful and persistent work or effort. So we have our very first command. We know that Jesus is going to come back, but here we are amidst suffering and persecution and difficulties today, and we have our first command. It's to be diligent. But why are Peter's closing comments here and commands so helpful for us as a church? Why do we need to know these things? Why is Peter closed in this way? at the end of 2 Peter, for the early church and for us. And it's two things, I think, which is perspective. The first thing is perspective. Anyone that's ever gotten coffee with me here knows that I have a trope saying that I say all the time, which is called swinging the pendulum. I always talk about the swing of the pendulum. For myself, it's proved invaluable to see that oftentimes in life, when we have an issue over here, we think the answer is just to swing to the extreme on the other side. But that Hardly is ever the case in the nature of which we do things. And as Christians, there's three responses that we can have to Jesus coming back and knowing and believing and having faith and hoping that he's going to return. And here's the three responses that we can have. And just like the pendulum swing, I'll give you an example for those that don't know. You can overeat and it'll destroy your body. You can undereat and it'll destroy your body. Balanced diet is in the middle. You can overwork and it'll destroy your body. And a recent study came out this week that those that retire early or take too much vacation time or time off, actually it's hard on your internal organs and your brain development. Taking too much time off isn't good for you. So is the answer just to never take time off again? No. Is the answer to plug yourself into work? No. That's why we have the Sabbath, right? We work and then we rest. So those are an example of the pendulums, the extremes on each side. So here's the three responses from the pendulum to knowing that Jesus is going to return. The first is an anxious response. We see this pretty often today, which is, I'm going to read the news headlines, and I'm going to see if I can find the mark of the beast hidden secretly in the passage, and I'm going to do some math equations and look for the cryptocurrencies there and see if that's a reminder. I'm going to predict. My mission is to find out when Jesus is coming back before even Jesus knows, and I think I can do it. I'm going to do the math equations, and I'm going to carry the one, and I'm going to guess March 23rd, let's say, 27 and, uh, 2027, and if I mess that up, I'll just say I didn't do the math right and just keep pushing it back. You live in an anxious reaction to Jesus coming back, You actually care more about Jesus coming back than Jesus. You're more obsessed with the return of Jesus than actually who's coming back. That's your passion. You're like, oh, I just can't wait to get this right. I mean, he's great and all, but I got it right. And you kind of, you you set aside evangelizing, you set aside Christian duty and focus on this future and anxious. And we see that a lot today. And even from where I'm from, that's, that's pretty common to be kind of on the anxious side of the return of the Lord. But there's another response on the opposite side, which maybe we don't hear as much, but it's just as prevalent, and that's an abandonment. Jesus is coming back, so why should I care? I can't really do anything. These are the people that sell their possessions and move out to the woods somewhere and just say, well, I'll either die or Jesus will come back. I know he's going to return. I don't really know how to live in spite of knowing these things, so I'm just going to resolve myself and remove myself from the equation. We see this in maybe cult movements, there are other things where they separate themselves from society and kind of start their own world around the end time prophecies or whatever that may be. But Peter's command is actually the center of the pendulum. It's to be diligent. To be diligent. It's not to be anxious and it's not to be despondent. The definition again is careful and persistent work. So it's not abandoning, it's careful. Abandoning just throws everything to the wind. Careful, diligent work means you're putting in effort, serious effort. It's also not anxiety. It's persistent, and persistence is patience and long-suffering. Anyone who's ever picked up a hobby never becomes a master on their first try. It takes years of practice and discipline. It takes a level of patience, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes, and carefully improving on those. So it's not anxious, ready to give up the second things don't go your way or try again. So diligence is the first call from Peter to how we respond with faith and expectancy today. And this is for us, church, because to the shock of many people in early church, Jesus still hasn't come back yet, and it's been 2,000 years, because God's sovereign timing has not come to pass. So the first call, be diligent. Verse 15 to 16. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. First, I want to focus on this first section, which is to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The past few weeks, every week, we've touched on this topic, and I think it's very important to touch on the patience of the Lord in his return. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. When we watch the news today, it is so easy to see things and watch a movie and hear dialogues happening around us, and we say seriously or jokingly, oh Lord, would you just please come? And I myself have done that many times, almost in a joking manner with friends. You hear a story, oh Lord, would you just please come? And I want to challenge us this day, and I've been challenged by this, that what a selfish request that could actually be. There are people outside the fold of Christ yet that have not yet been brought into the fold. And if we got our way to escape a little bit of inconvenience and frustrations so that those would be separated from God for all eternity, then maybe we need to have a heart check. I certainly needed to have a heart check. God's patience and his sovereignty is over that. If he hasn't come back, he has his reasons. We have to believe that. We have to have faith. And it's easy. I mean, with everything that's been happening in Afghanistan... It's easy to see that and say, Lord, would you just please return? And we do expect and hope for the Lord's return. I'm not saying don't expect and hope for that. But it's clear, again, throughout the scriptures, that God's patience in his return is a mercy, and it is is grace towards us that leads to salvation. So let's trust in the Lord's return and his timing within that. There are still those outside the fold. Charles Spurgeon also puts this best, talking about this. We are puzzled at the long-suffering which causes so weary a delay. One of the reasons is that we have not much long-suffering ourselves. We think that we do well to be angry with the rebellious, and so we prove ourselves to be more like Jonah than Jesus. Sure, it's hard. Jonah was by no means perfect or a villain, but one thing's for sure he wanted his enemies to suffer. And he struggled with the concept of a forgiving God. Why should they be given forgiveness? And we see things happen today. And understandably, in the pain and anguish that we feel, we wish that judgment would come now for those. While, Lord, while the Lord has patience, because we deserve that same wrath. We're no, we're no different. But we often like to do us versus them mentality. To let us be more like Jesus than, than Jonah. Jonah. So we had our first call, which is to be diligent. Now we're going to go to a bit of a transition. Why Paul? Why is Paul mentioned here? The first time reading this many times, you feel like you're on this climactic journey through false teachers, Jesus' return, and it's intense, and it's getting exciting, and you're getting ready for this big revelation is going to happen, and then Peter just goes all the way. Oh, but just so you guys know, uh, Paul's kind of hard to understand, which is also the understatement of the year. Paul is very complicated sometimes, and that's okay. And that's what we're going to talk about now, which is why that's okay, that Paul can be a little complex. So why is Paul mentioned in the closing out of Second Peter? Three main points within that, which is the first, it promotes unity. Paul and Peter, by some people's standards, weren't pen pals. They had an interesting relationship. Remember, there was some rebuke going on there, some embarrassing experiences for Peter rebuked for his decision regarding not eating with those that were circumcised. So Peter's making it clear, although I'm the one who was offended, and obviously maybe felt a bit awkward and, and, and hurtful, I love Paul. He is our beloved brother. We are in unity. Just because of one experience in the past doesn't mean you can pit us against each other. Because in some ways, it would seem like they're an easy target. Well, you know, I'm more on Peter's side of things, and they had that tiff and taff, so I think I'll go with Peter. Or maybe, ooh, I like Paul, so Peter's what he's saying here, maybe isn't as important. He's saying, Paul is our beloved brother. We are in agreement. Also, by promoting unity, it makes it clear that all Scripture is inspired by God. So although these are different people in different locations, they are in unity on the message. Not one of them is more divine than the other, not one of them is more intellectual than the other. They've all been breathed in and in agreement. And the third point within this first section of unity, Paul also speaks about salvation through the patience of God. Romans two four, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So again, agreeing with one another on the unity. The second point of, why is Paul mentioned here? It reminds us of false teaching. We've spent some time talking about false teaching these past few weeks, and again, it also brought up once more. So this is verse 16. There are some things in them that are hard to understand regarding Paul's teaching, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Methodist theologian Adam Clark puts it best. The verb twist, which the apostles use here, signifies to distort, to put to the rack, to torture, to overstretch, and dislocate the limbs. And hence the persons here intended are those who proceed according to no fair plan of interpretation, but force unnatural and sophistical meanings on the Word of God. It's a quite gruesome description, right? It's like Wow, I wouldn't have thought of it that way. But it's true, right? When we twist things that are true, they become distorted, broken, Falsehoods. Something true becomes false. I really want to focus on the second half of this passage, uh, not passage, but Adam Clark's quote as well. The persons here don't play fair. As believers, maybe we expect that the outside culture is going to play the same game that we play. That's not always the case, nor necessarily is it ever the case. There is no fair standard by which people will choose to interpret Scripture. They'll just say, well, I don't want it to mean that, so it doesn't anymore. And they force unnatural and sophistical meanings on the word of God. I didn't even know what the word sophistical was until this week. So obviously, it must be very complicated. And any scripture about Paul in this nature is true. At this time, Paul already would have been complex and complicated. Those that have read the epistles and Pauline doctrine, he shoots straight and he has some complex things that you have to spend time wrestling with. Every scripture can be manipulated. And it was even said here. All No scripture is devoid from attempts for people to twist and make it their own thing. I think Paul's doctrines have a particular interest for those because it's so complex that those that are ignorant can easily be led astray by Paul's teaching. Because if they use big words, then they must know what they're talking about, and all of a sudden you're on this rabbit hole in another direction. But I think now more than ever this is true as we deal with the, the revolution against traditional sexual norms and values, Paul is the first one to be attacked. I've met with a few progressive friends over the years, and I love to hear kind of where they are on their views about faith and whatnot. And I kind of ask them about different people within the Bible. And you know what? Most progressive people, they don't have a problem with Jesus. You know why? Because they make Jesus hippie Jesus, a fight the system man kind of Jesus with flowers in his hair, tie-dye t-shirt. That's fine. They can do that. But they don't like Paul. They really don't like Paul. That's their number one prerogative, their number one mission. I need to recontextualize Paul because Paul really tells me things I don't want to hear. And last month I met with someone and we were going through Romans 1 together because she disagreed vehemently with me about traditional sexual norms And we read through Romans 1, and afterwards, she didn't really know what to say. And then she said, well, you know what? I just think that Paul needs to be reinterpreted to a more modern, acceptable context. I just don't think the world of this day can deal with that. And I was like, okay, all right. So you can see, Paul's teachings are hard today. They've always been difficult. But now, there's another pressure, which is we just don't like what he has to say. And so I did some research this week on uh, a lot of these progressive sexual books about kind of revitalizing and re-looking at what actually it means to be this and that. And I spent some time looking at some of the most popular books on Amazon that say hey, we need to do away with the traditional views. And skimming through with them, it was clear they didn't focus so much on the gospel side of things. Their number one goal was to attack Paul. Their number one goal was to attack those complicated things in the epistles, and if you could deal with that, then you were good, and you could kind of try to make your own version of the gospel. And so we see it's clear that this is a reminder that there is still false teaching happening in relation to Paul's teaching. So Paul is not an easy target because there's anything wrong with Romans or Galatians. There's nothing wrong with these books. It's just that because they're complicated, we have excuses, which leads to our third point, which is, this challenges us on our excuses. Hebrews 5.13 For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Ouch. Sure, right there. There it is, guys. Right there for us to take it. Now, what I'm not saying and what's not being said now is after we leave, there's going to be a form out there for you to sign up for seminary and you guys are all going to become biblical scholars and you guys need to devote yourself to becoming history experts. That's not what's being said here. For those that are in the audience that feel called in that direction, that's awesome. Pursue it. Go for it. But we're not all called to be these seminarian experts, and that's a really misinterpretation, and maybe we're missing the point if we think that's the focus of the passage here. In Calm last week, uh, one of our members was talking about that the gospel is simple that a child can believe. A child can believe in the message of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again, and he conquered sin through the grace of God and also, an 80-year-old biblical scholar can be perplexed by the complexities of the gospel. They can do the same thing at the same time. And although it could seem ironic, it's not. That's the gospel for you guys. It can be believed by anyone. It can be believed by those that are young and unaware. The problem is, is what's the trajectory? Is the 14-year-old that gets saved that doesn't know a lot about the gospel, is he going to stay that way when he's 70 years old? That's the issue, right? The issue isn't where you, where you start, It's the direction that you're heading in. So verse 16, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. You know what's funny here? The ignorant gets destroyed. I mean, it's not really funny, but the ignorant gets destroyed just like the unstable. I mean, that's what? Because our whole lives, we grow up thinking, well, the unjust and unstable, they're malicious. They twist our words. So it makes sense that they would be destroyed by their own false teaching. But good intentions don't save people ignorance is on the same category of destruction as instability. You'd almost feel like they should be separate. Because I know a lot of... Well, I wouldn't say it, I don't want to say anyone in particular, of course. But there are people that maybe you would think are maybe more unaware of things. But they're good people, right? They're not trying to twist or hurt anyone. Why should they be prone to the same destruction? It's because the unstable will twist the ignorant. <laughs> That's the problem. And they'll both be destroyed together because the, the ignorant is an easy target. So it's not that the unstable is the villain, and the ignorant one is the innocent one. They're both leaving themselves open to this destruction. And we're going to have the remedy and antidote for that in a second. So in conclusion, as we veered off topic a bit, but not topic, to talk about Paul and why is he mentioned in the greater scheme of how do we live knowing that Jesus is coming back, Paul's mention is important. Paul's mention here is vital. Paul's mention helps us to understand how do we live knowing that Jesus is coming back. And this leads directly into the second command that Peter has for us. So the first command, if you guys remember, was to be diligent, which is careful and persistent work. The second point is to be vigilant, to be vigilant. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Take care that you are not carried away. So I'm going to read uh, my, probably my favorite passage in the Bible. Ephesians 4:13 4, through 14 Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That passage itself is quite a dense, dense one and can be a bit complicated, which is what we just talked about. So we read it again and we look at it over again and we see that the answer to instability and ignorance is to attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God in the fullness of Christ. And it's the big waves. The big waves are easy to spot when we think of false teaching, when we think of the things that twist and lead us astray. It's easy to look at things today and go, well, whoa, that's extreme. I think they got that from second opinions or first feelings, because I don't know that. Any book in the Bible talks about that. But it's the little undercurrents that pull you out to ocean, that are things I think today we have to worry about a bit more. The soothsayers, the whispers we hear in our, in our ear from the culture. My second year in university, I had a big mathematics exam, and often I would go to, on the internet and go to YouTube, and you could re-watch like, the formulas over and over again until you really felt you grasped the material. And this worked incredibly well for me in university, and really helped me to understand the things that I was studying. The night before this massive uh, mathematics exam, I started as usual on the formulas, things are going well. And two hours later, I'm watching giraffe courtship rituals. Not proud of it. Five minutes into this video of learning about how a male giraffe courts a female giraffe, I realized, like getting struck by lightning, what on earth is happening? I was supposed to be studying for an exam, I mean, this is educational, but not the kind of education I need to study right now. The thing is, I had been lost two hours ago. It was a little thing called autoplay and recommended videos. And while I went with diligence at first to study the material, I slowly, one recommended video after a time, each one a little less related to math until I was long gone. And it wasn't the giraffe video that meant that I had lost my study time. I had lost it hours ago. I just didn't know I had lost it until how silly of a video I was on. And that's oftentimes how it is. You're out in the middle of the ocean, and you don't even know you're there. It's the undercurrent pulls you out slowly. It seems normal and familiar at first, and the next thing you know, you're stranded. And it was only such an extreme thing as a giraffe courtship ritual video that made me realize what had happened. Imagine, had it gone on for another few hours before I realized? We see this today in the modern church context in something called deconstruction. It's the same principle. You have sound, orthodox, traditional Christian views, and you come up with something in culture and you say, I don't really know if I really like that anymore about Christianity. It doesn't mesh well with what the world's saying. Well, I'll drop that, but I'll I'll keep everything else. Time goes on. Well... You know, I dropped that, but this also, I don't know how I feel about that. A wrathful God? I I can't do that. And next thing you know, the boat that you were on out to ocean is just scraps, and you sink to the bottom. You're no longer Christian anymore. You don't believe a single Christian value. But it didn't start that way. It didn't start that way. It was the small whispers. It was the waves that were taking you to and fro from one doctrine and cunning to the other. You didn't have a firm foundation in the fullness of Christ in the grace of God, in the knowledge of God. So we transition now to the final point. Verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The third command, the third call. To be Christian. If you don't have this, being diligent and vigilant are meaningless. They don't matter. What are you diligent for? Why are you vigilant? If you don't believe, if you don't believe and accept the grace of God through Jesus on the cross, if you don't believe in the salvation, the gift of grace from God, then why does it matter? I mean, it's nice to talk about Jesus coming back, but if you actually haven't stepped in and said that Jesus is my master, then who are you waiting for the return of? It sounds tongue-in-cheek, right? Be Christian. Be Christian. Everyone here is at church. We assume that we're all Christian, right? Why are you saying these things? All the other things were nice. They were points and commands that we could easily practice after we left. But if you don't believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again, if you don't believe in the unity of the faith, if you don't believe in the knowledge of the Son of God and living out a life that brings honor to the Lord, then why do these things matter? And you might say, this is impossible. Of course I'm Christian. Saying Christian doesn't mean you're Christian. I was a missionary in Greece for three years where Paul himself stepped foot. And I was sharing the gospel with this one girl. And we were talking and I was kind of waiting for the opportunity. And I shared, you know, what I believe. And I asked her, okay, what do you believe? And she's like, oh, I'm a Christian too. And in my head I'm like, okay, I'll invite her to this calm group thing we're having. And she goes, oh, I don't believe God exists though. And I... <laughs> Everything else she said, I didn't hear because I was just like shook to my core. Because in Greece, where we lived, under your eye color, on your driver's license, and your hair color, you had your face statement. I've got blue hair, I got you know, blue eyes, brown hair, Christian, and so being a Christian was just as cultural as it gets. It's to a point that you could, that she could say in full faith and confidence, "I'm a Christian, but I don't believe God's real," and she meant that with conviction. So it is possible to say you're Christian without actually believing in the message of the gospel. If we have diligence and we don't have vigilance, but we don't believe in the gospel, it's incomplete. We can have those other two things, but you have to believe. And how do we believe? It's in the grace that is offered to us through God, in Jesus. Verse 18, again, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of salvation is in the end. There's the grace that comes, but also there's an appreciativeness of the grace. And true grace was going to bring knowledge. Grace brings thankfulness to God. If we're aware of the grace through the salvation, we say, and we, and we rest in that beautiful thing that is the grace of God. We want to rest in it more. We want to be thankful and appreciative and aware and live a life of thankfulness that we were saved and plucked from eternal eternal separation from God. And then again, true grace brings knowledge. Grace brings thankfulness to God for the good news, and thankfulness brings knowledge of our Creator, because knowledge is a byproduct of true grace. How easy is it to love someone you don't know? It's pretty hard. Imagine a lover of musical instruments that doesn't know how to play a single one. It's just weird. A surfer with no desire to learn to read the waves. That's strange. A lawyer who cares little about the law. That doesn't make sense. People that have hobbies want to improve at them if they love them. It's a relationship. They they go hand in hand. When you accept and believe in the grace of God and cherish that, it leads to a desire to know him, to have a relationship with him. And John Piper says this best, the antidote to deception and destruction is growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We talked about the destruction that takes place for those that are unstable and ignorant. And the antidote to that is knowledge and grace and growth in these through Jesus Christ. Knowledge is a byproduct of genuine love of the grace of God. I really do want to reiterate don't, don't miss that we leave this thinking we need to go learn more facts. It's like when you fall in love with somebody, you want to know who they are as a person. You just don't want to know interesting facts about them. Sure, facts are a part of it, but it's a relationship. It's a byproduct. We should be so thankful this morning that we have hope and expectancy that the Lord is going to return. Jesus is coming back. And maybe that's scary sometimes to think about. I understand. We sometimes we forget. We live our life day in and day out, and we kind of can forget about that Jesus is going to return. Praise God for Peter helping us through the Bible about how do we? What do we do? If you're like me and you can get anxious during times when you're, when you don't really like expected surprises, you turn to the Bible. You turn to God for diligence praying that he'll give you vigilance to be aware of the voices you hear around you, pulling you in different directions, praying to be reminded of the amazing mercy that God did in our lives when he saved us from sin through the good news of the gospel and a desire to know him more in a real and genuine and loving way. Praise God that we have the Bible to teach us and guide us on how to live as believers on how to have hope. We all should long for the return of the Lord. But how thankful are we that he, in his mercy, still has those to the fold that he wants to bring in. And for those today that aren't so sure about where they stand as followers of Christ, what that looks like with the gospel, I pray through the Holy Spirit that there would be a conviction to put your faith in Jesus Jesus bore our iniquities for us. There's a saying in the, thing we were, the documentary you we were watching last night, and it's a common question you hear, and it's, why do bad things happen to good people? And the response is, well, only bad things have only ever happened to one person, and his name was Jesus. We aren't good people, and that might be pretty countercultural to hear, but thank you, God, thank you, Jesus, that he, a good person, took bad things on our behalf. And I'll close out as Peter himself closed out. This is one of the last things Peter says before he's executed for his faith. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Lord, we love you so much. And we're thankful that you're coming back and that you are the master of the universe and you're going to do a miraculous thing when you do return. And we long for that day. But help us in this moment to live now as your children. Help us to live as followers of you. Help us to be your people. Give us courage to share the gospel with those around us. Help us to put our full identity and rest in you alone. Help us and give us a remembrance of what you did on the cross for us. You are the only God. You are a good God a perfect God, a holy God, a sovereign God. And on this Sunday, we want to follow you, we want to love you, and we want to be like your son, Jesus. Amen.